You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. The particular verse we're going to focus on is Jeremiah 29.7, but uh, I'll read the first 14 verses so that we can have some sense of the context there. So this is Jeremiah 29. Verse 1 following. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, (coughs) build houses and live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will will restore your fortunes and (coughs) gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So the particular verse there, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The situation to which Jeremiah is speaking is Judah in exile in Babylon, the great city on the Euphrates River in present-day Iraq was the capital of a mighty empire, which modern historians call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This was founded by Nabopolassar, who was appointed governor of Babylon in 626 BC by the last of the Assyrian kings. At that time, the Assyrians were overlords of the ancient Near East. This, however, was the period when the Medes, a confederacy of eastern tribes, were increasingly powerful and an ever-growing threat to Assyrian rule. 
When the Medes made their final assault on Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nabopolassar switched his loyalties to the Medes, negotiated a marriage for his son, Nebuchadnezzar, to the Median leader's daughter, and took part in the siege of Nineveh. When the city fell in 606 BC, the southwestern part of Assyria was given to Nabopolassar in the sharing out of the spoils of victory among the Medes and the Babylonians. The Medes, however, proved unable to exploit their triumph in the sense of creating an alternative empire owing to their status as a confederacy of tribes, each with its own prince. Babylon, however, moved swiftly and efficiently into the political vacuum. This meant the creation of a new Babylonian empire, embracing the entire valley of the Euphrates River up to the Taurus mountain range, together with Syria, Phoenicia, Palestine and Idumea. There followed a fierce life and death struggle between Babylon and Egypt for geopolitical mastery of the whole south of the region, eventually settled in Babylon's favour under its second king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was crowned in 604 BC. This great monarch <coughs> reigned for 43 years. He consolidated Babylon's territorial gains, drove the Egyptians out of Syria and Palestine, sacked Jerusalem in 587-86 BC, took the Jews captive to Babylon, and inflicted grave military devastation on Egypt itself. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the Neo-Babylonian Empire became the unchallenged dominant power in the ancient Near East. Apart from his conquest of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar is best known to history for constructing the most striking and enduring architectural monuments of his empire and its capital city. His palace in Babylon, with its hanging gardens, was one of the so-called seven wonders of the world. Daniel, chapter 4, verses 29 to 30, sums up his achievements and his imperial egoism. Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? In the person of Nebuchadnezzar and the Neo-Babylonian Empire, secular history intruded on Old Testament sacred history in the most direct and traumatising manner. Jerusalem, the city of God, destroyed. The temple, destroyed. God's people, violently uprooted from the soil of the promised land and forcibly resettled as a subjugated people, many of them within the walls of the great Babylon itself and many, of course, in other parts of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The political objective of the resettlement was to separate the Jews from each other and from geographical nearness to Egypt, which had been their collaborator in every rebellion against Babylonian sovereignty, and so to merge them into the general population of the empire. Now this resettlement must not be limited to the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction Many Jews had already been taken captive into Babylon prior to this. 
This was in consequence of the ongoing struggle between the two empires of Babylon and Egypt, with the Jews caught in the middle, and their kings chopping and changing their allegiance from one to the other as opportunism dictated. For example, we read in 2 Kings, chapter 24, verse 14, he, that is Nebuchadnezzar, carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valour, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Now that was under the Jewish king Jehoiakim in 597, ten years prior to the sack of Jerusalem. Jeremiah himself, as far as we know, was never resident in any part of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. In fact, he went with a body of Jewish refugees to Egypt, albeit against his will, constrained by Johanan, a military chieftain in what was left of the Jewish army. There in Egypt we lose sight of the prophet. The last recorded scene of his life finds him in Tapanes in Egypt, foretelling Egypt's conquest by Nebuchadnezzar and rebuking his fellow exiles for having lapsed into idolatry. Now, chapter 29 of Jeremiah's prophecy is a letter sent by the prophet to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. <coughs> These are exiles from the 597 resettlement mentioned in 2 Kings 24. No doubt it must have taxed the minds of the exiles, perhaps especially the godly among them, how to react to their exile. Would it be temporary? Could they expect a speedy return to Jerusalem? Should they dwell in Babylon with their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet and their staff in their hands? To borrow the language of the Passover. Uh, in other words, not getting involved uh, in the life of Babylon, not settling down there, but keeping everything in a state of extreme readiness for a quick return to the promised land. Now that might well be the attitude suggested uh, both by patriotism and piety. Would it not be an unpatriotic betrayal of national aspirations to settle down in Babylon? <coughs> Would it not be ungodly to contribute to the life and well-being of that pagan city with its worship of false gods and its brutal and aggressive military imperialism? The natural sentiments of the Jewish exiles even their instinctive godly sentiments are encapsulated uh, with heartfelt lyrical power in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now Jeremiah himself might never have thought in any other way left to his own devices. But he was a prophet 
He lived in a closeness of communion with God, denied to most Jews, and being admitted into the council of God, Jeremiah knew that God had a different purpose for the Babylonian exiles. And so, verses 4 to 7 of his letter there, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God tells the exiles to settle down in Babylon. They are not to expect any swift return to Jerusalem. It would not be for another two generations that their children's children would be permitted to go back. It would certainly not be in the exile's lifetime. This was no accident of history, but the providence and purpose of God. Verse 4, the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 7, the city where I have sent you into exile. God has deliberately given Babylon dominion over his people. As Matthew Henry comments, all the force of the king of Babylon could not have done it if God had not ordered it, nor could he have any power against them but what was given him from above. If God caused them to be carried captives, they might be sure that he neither did them any wrong nor meant them any hurt. Therefore, it was the duty of the exiles to reconcile themselves to their divinely appointed fate and to give thought and effort to living henceforth in Babylon. So verses 5 and 6. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Make a new life for yourselves in Babylon. You will not be returning to Jerusalem for two generations. So for the time being, dwell peaceably in Babylon. No sedition, no rebellion, no premature attempts at escaping your exile. Build houses, plant gardens, raise families in Babylon. Matthew Poole comments, Be not uneasy in your minds, not resolving what to do through the prophecies of the false prophets that tell you the captivity shall be but two years, or at least very short. But do all things which you would do if Babylon were to be your fixed habitation, as it is like to be for 70 years, say the prophets what they please. Marry and give and take in marriage. Do whatsoever it becometh prudent men to do, who would accommodate themselves in a place where they are like to abide and preserve their families, that they might not be utterly extinguished. Even more than this, 
God lays on the exiles an obligation to be positively concerned about the well-being of Babylon. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. (coughs) Now there is some debate uh, whether the first exhortation, seek the welfare of the city, has the same meaning as the second, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Does seek mean pray? The Old Testament often uses parallelisms of this kind, saying the same thing twice over uh, in different words. A number of representative commentators, however, think that seek, while including prayer, has a wider meaning. Here's John Calvin's comment. Seek the peace of the city. This may be understood of prayers, for daresh often means to pray, but it may suitably be taken here, as I think, in reference to the conduct of the people. As though he had said that the Jews were to do what they could to exert themselves to the utmost so that no harm might happen to the Babylonian monarchy, for they are afterwards directed to pray. It may indeed be that the same thing is repeated, in other words, but if anyone weighs the subject more fully, he will, I think, assent to what I have stated that in the first clause, the prophet bids them to be faithful to King Nebuchadnezzar and to his monarchy. The Jewish exiles, then, are to do whatever lies in their power to promote the welfare of their earthly city of exile. The word, translated welfare, in the ESV, peace, in the authorised version, peace and prosperity, in the NIV, is the Hebrew word Shalom, Uh, and that means something more than peace uh, in the sense of quietness or uh, absence of conflict. It does have a more positive connotation, and uh, many modern translations opt for welfare, the ESV, the NASB, the RSV, and the new RSV. Seek the overall good, the well-being, the security and prosperity of Babylon, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. John Gill comments, which is an argument taken from self-interest, intimating that while the city in which they were was in safety and prosperity, was in a flourishing condition as to its health and trade, they would partake more or less with them of the same advantages. And on the other hand, should they be distressed with the sword, famine or pestilence or any grievous calamity, they would be involved in the same. This seeking the welfare of the city includes praying for it. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now, that must have been a difficult precept to obey. Pray to the Lord, the true God, on behalf of the idolatrous pagan city that has taken you as captives away from his holy city. And yet, such was God's command. It is my purpose, he says, that you should dwell in Babylon. Therefore, pray not for its destruction, but for its welfare. Since it is my will that you live here, you must pray that life here will be good. And you cannot expect life in the city to be good for you, unless it is good for all its inhabitants. 
Pray to me, then, for the peace, safety and prosperity of Babylon, acknowledging thereby that I, not the Babylonian gods, am the giver of these blessings. Well, such was God's word through Jeremiah to the Jewish exiles in Babylon back in the 6th century BC. What message does it hold for us today? Well, first of all, the cities of Jerusalem and Babylon are used in a spiritual or symbolic sense in the New Testament to depict the church and the world. The city of God under the headship of Christ and the city of man under the headship of Satan. For the spiritual and symbolic sense of Jerusalem in the New Testament, see Galatians chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 12. In Galatians 4.26, the Apostle Paul says, The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Paul declares that there is another Jerusalem other than the earthly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem, the headquarters of Christ-denying Judaism, with its false devotion to the Mosaic law as the way of salvation, is in a condition of slavery to sin and death. But this other Jerusalem is above. It is a heavenly Jerusalem. By the heavenly Jerusalem, Paul probably means the spiritual kingdom and government of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the reign of Christ over the hearts of believers, forming them into a people who will one day inherit the universe. This Jerusalem is above because its king, the Lord Jesus, is in the glory of heaven. He is above, ruling all of creation at the Father's right hand. And his people are spiritually born from above. They have a heavenly, not an earthly birth. So the true Jerusalem to which Christ's people belong is a heavenly Jerusalem. Paul radically downgrades the significance of the earthly Jerusalem. In a spiritual and ultimate sense, we who are in Christ do not belong to any earthly city, whether Jerusalem, Washington DC, Brussels, London, Newcastle or Inverness. We are citizens of a heavenly city, the Jerusalem which is above. There is a spiritual city, a spiritual society and kingdom, whose head and prince is the ascended and glorified Christ. And that is the true city, society and kingdom to which the Christian belongs. Paul also says that this Jerusalem above is free. Its government cannot be a government that brings people into bondage. Rather, it liberates people from bondage. Spiritual freedom from the reign of sin, freedom from condemnation, freedom from Satan, freedom from death, freedom from the external yoke of the Mosaic law. These are the hallmarks of the Jerusalem above and its people. And then finally, Paul says that the Jerusalem above is the mother of us all. The us all here refers to all Christian believers. Paul himself, the Galatians to whom he's writing, and indeed every other Christian. Whether Jew or Gentile, we all have one mother, the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, the image of a mother here is taken over from what Paul has been saying in the previous verses of Galatians 4 about Hagar and Sarah, the mothers of Ishmael and Isaac. 
Sarah, the free woman, is the mother of the child of promise, Isaac. Therefore, the heavenly Jerusalem, which corresponds to Sarah, is the mother of true believers. So the heavenly Jerusalem, Paul says, quite literally, is our metropolis. Metropolis is the Greek word for mother city. We are sons and daughters of the Jerusalem above, because that is where our spiritual birth comes from. We have a heavenly birth born from above. And she's also our mother city in this sense, because we're destined to live and dwell there forever within the embrace of her life when she is fully manifested in the age to come. Now there's a similar spiritual and symbolic use of Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 4. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The heavenly Jerusalem. Christians are, in a spiritual sense, the citizens of this city of God, invisible to the eye of flesh. Indeed, fellow citizens with the angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. Our names are enrolled there, says Paul, written down in the electoral roll of heaven, so to speak. As for the spiritual and the symbolic use of Babylon in the New Testament, we only have to think of the repeated use of the term in the book of Revelation. There, Babylon is the organised earthly power associated with the kings and merchants of the earth, and especially with Rome, the city on the seven hills, which was the embodiment of human imperial power in the Apostle John's day. Babylon is also portrayed, of course, as antagonistic to the church. There will always be something about the city of man that sits uneasily with the city of God. Even though the earthly city isn't always drunk with the blood of the saints, as it is in the book of Revelation. Babylon, then, the city of man, has its most concrete and visible manifestation in the state especially powerful and imperialistic states, empires like Rome in John's day. Jerusalem, however, the city of God, never has its visible manifestation in any state, but only in the church. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ's word to Pontius Pilate, John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Babylon, the city of the world, depends for its very existence and life on force. Its servants fight. They uphold and extend its power by force of arms. Jerusalem, the city of God, does not and cannot function in this way. Christ disowns all use of force in the affairs of his kingdom. The only sword of Christ's kingdom is truth. 
The only power that upholds and extends Jerusalem is the Spirit of God. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It follows then, from all of this, (coughs) that the church on earth, Jerusalem's manifestation here below, will always find itself living in Babylon, within the walls of an earthly city. Whether that city is Babylon itself, or the United Kingdom, or any other manifestation of the city of man. In that sense, our situation as Christians is always akin to that of the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Our exile covers our entire sojourn here in the world. Our return to Jerusalem is our departure from this world to the Jerusalem above, the heavenly metropolis, the heavenly mother city in all its fullness and glory. So God's word through Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon has enduring relevance for us and our relationship to whatever earthly city we find ourselves in. So let me suggest three applications. First of all, there is nothing ungodly or shameful about Christians living in the earthly city. There is nothing ungodly or shameful about Christians living in the earthly city. We can hear Jeremiah's message to the exiles in Babylon and take it to ourselves. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now I would suggest there are two equal and opposite errors to avoid here. They usually are always two equal and opposite errors. One uh, is a, a sort of extreme pietism which says that Christians, as a matter of principle, ought to abandon the earthly city, dissolve all ties with it, and live in exclusively Christian communes. The other is a sort of warped patriotism, which identifies a particular earthly state with the cause of God, resulting in a self-righteous messianic nationalism. Both extremes have appeared recurrently in Christian history, and as tendencies, they are always with us. People indeed swing from one false extreme to the other. As Martin Luther famously said, the human heart is like a drunken peasant. You help him up onto his horse on one side, and he falls off on the other side. From the extreme pietism of total withdrawal, to the extreme this-worldliness of Christian nationalism, and perhaps back again by the law of endless reaction. Christianity is, I think, always in a bad way if all we do is keep reacting against things. But Jeremiah's message hits the golden mean. On the one hand, Babylon remains Babylon, not Jerusalem. We cannot expect the city of man to be anything other than the city of man. It will always be of this world and bear all the marks of this world. It is foolish to think 
in any secular sense of building Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Such utopian dreams will always shatter on the reefs of the reality of satanic power and human corruption. For a secularised insight into this, one has only to read George Orwell's Animal Farm. From a Christian point of view, no one pondered this more deeply than Augustine in his greatest work, City of God. And arguably, the most important thing Augustine does for us uh, in this treatise is offer a piercing Christian critique of the pretensions of the city of man. The reality of original sin and human bondage to Satan, Augustine insisted, are as applicable to human institutions as to human individuals. He had no time for messianic posturings by any state, whether the Christianized Roman Empire of his own day or any successor in the future. Whatever their rhetoric, Augustine had little doubt that earthly kingdoms are ultimately based on the realpolitik of power. The only kind of unity they understood was the unity of force. Join with us in happy brotherhood, or else we shall kill you. So Babylon remains Babylon. And yet, like the Jewish exiles, Christians are not called on as a matter of principle to renounce the earthly city, head for the hills, and hide away in exclusively Christian communes. We are to live in the earthly city. And while preserving our distinctive identity as Christians, as the exiles preserved their Jewish identity, we are to engage in city life, building houses, planting gardens, raising families. Jeremiah doesn't say it, but this line of thought leads directly uh, to the Saviour's precept in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now observe, this will not change the nature of the city of man. We will never convert it into the city of God. But the leavening influence of God's city, living in the midst of the earthly city, should help make the latter a better place to live in for all its inhabitants. Other aspects of living in the earthly city would be for example, paying taxes. Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom a revenue is owed. Also, showing proper respect for those in authority. Romans 13, 7. Respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. 1 Peter 2.17 Love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. And showing proper respect for all the laws of the earthly city, as long as they do not contradict God's law. Romans 13 verse 1 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
1 Peter 2, 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, all of this is part and parcel of what it means for citizens of the heavenly city to live in the earthly city. Second application. Christians should actively seek the welfare of the earthly city and pray for it. Christians should actively seek the welfare of the earthly city and pray for it. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now this goes beyond merely living in the city and thereby the natural side effects of Christian influence being disseminated. It goes beyond that. Here is a positive mandate proactively to pursue the good of the city and to pray not for its destruction but for its peace and prosperity. We should not limit this to the narrow idea of democratic Christian citizenship. Most societies throughout history in which Christians have lived have not been democracies, and citizenship in the modern sense has historically been the privilege of the few. <coughs> what Jeremiah's injunction more generally means is that we are to do whatever we can to promote the welfare of the earthly city. Now, in the early church period, before the Roman Empire embraced Christianity, this promotion of the city's well-being took the form of massive church-based social welfare activities, providing care for the poor, homes for abandoned children, hospitals and leper houses, and so forth. The welfare state did not exist back then. It was more a case of the welfare church. However, it is legitimate uh, to apply Jeremiah's mandate to the opportunities afforded by democratic citizenship, which I take it is what the Christian Institute does. Seeking the welfare of the city in this context involves encouraging good legislation, which will benefit city life, and warning against bad legislation, which would harm it. And of course, informing the community more widely of these issues. Praying for the welfare of the city is another aspect of Jeremiah's precept. Let me give you two examples from early church liturgies. The liturgy of St. James, associated with the church in Jerusalem, and the liturgy of St. Mark, associated with the church in Alexandria. These two have a claim to being the earliest surviving complete liturgies although in their existing form they cannot be earlier than the late 4th century. Here's a prayer from the Liturgy of St. James. Send down the gracious rain upon the thirsty lands and make the rivers flow in full stream according to thy grace. The fruits of the land do thou, O Lord, fill with seed and make ripe for the harvest. In peace, courage, justice and tranquility. Preserve the kingdom of thy servant, whom thou hast deemed worthy to reign over this land, from evil days, from famine and pestilence, from the assault of barbarians. Defend, O Lord, this Christ-loving city, 
lowly and worthy of thy compassion, as thou didst spare Nineveh of old. Now the reference to Jerusalem there as a Christ-loving city shows that we're dealing with the period after the conversion of the emperors. Nonetheless, here is the church praying in its public services of worship, not for the church, but for the earthly city. Next, we have this prayer from the liturgy of St. Mark. O God, sovereign Lord, the Father of our Lord and God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, we pray and beseech thee to grant that our King may enjoy peace and be just and brave. Subdue under him, O God, all his adversaries and enemies. Gird on thy shield and armour and rise to his aid. Give him the victory, O God that his heart may be set on peace and the praise of thy holy name, that we too, in his peaceful reign, may spend a calm and tranquil life in all reverence and godly fear, through the grace, mercy and love of thine only begotten Son, through whom and with whom be glory and power to thee with thy most holy, good and life-giving spirit, now, henceforth and forevermore. Some may think this prayer a shade nationalistic, but notice that it first prays that the king, the emperor, may be just before it asks God to give him victory over his enemies. So praying for the earthly city has historically been part of the church's public prayers, and it should still be so today. It has, of course, explicit New Testament sanction. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 following. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour. I would suggest that if churches today are not praying for the earthly city, as scripture requires and the practice of the early church illustrates, then they're surely failing quite seriously in their duty and in their conduct of public worship. A one-sided pietism can lead churches into praying only for spiritual matters. But apostolic precept and patristic practice teach otherwise. The public intercessions of the church ought to encompass praying for the secular welfare of the earthly city and divine blessing on the work of its magistrates. And then the third application. Christians should recognise that their own well-being here below is intimately bound up with the well-being of all other members of the earthly city. Christians should recognise that their own well-being here below is intimately bound up with the well-being of all other members of the earthly city. Last part of verse 7. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Remember the comment of John Gill, which I quoted a bit earlier. While the city in which they were was in safety and prosperity, was in a flourishing condition, as to its health and trade, they would partake more or less with them of the same advantages. And on the other hand, should they be distressed with the sword, famine, or pestilence, or any grievous calamity, they would be involved in the same. 
In this respect, we can say of Christians, no man is an island entire of itself. There is an elemental power of solidarity that runs through the life of the human race on earth, <laughs> cutting across the spiritual distinction between the regenerate and the unregenerate. Think of the fundamental and original solidarity of all human beings in Adam. The primary society is simply the human society, which found its binding principle in Adam the head. When Adam fell, the entire race fell in him. Those who would be saved and those who would not were equally involved and equally affected. That power of solidarity spreads out from its primary source in Adam and engulfs all lesser societies, the family, the village, the city, the state. The people of God and the people of the world, like two sets of finely ground powder, are thoroughly blended and intermingled in these social units. And so our earthly fortunes very often rise and fall with the fortunes of our family, village, city or state. As Augustine remarked, when Rome fell, its fall did not spare its Christian inhabitants. They suffered with the rest. So Jeremiah's message to the Jewish exiles in Babylon here impresses upon us our social solidarity with the whole population of the earthly city. There is a human brotherhood extending beyond the Christian circle. Our welfare and the city's welfare are bound together in solidarity. But what about when the earthly city persecutes the church, someone might ask? Do not the city's welfare and the church's welfare then come into conflict? Well, no, because in harming the church, the city is damaging its own welfare. It is like a community of sick people persecuting the healthy, who were once sick themselves, but have now found the remedy and are only too willing to share it. By persecuting them, the community of the sick is doing itself no favours. And further, it is provoking the judgment of God. Remember Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10? I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It can hardly be in the earthly city's interests to call down upon itself the judgment of the sovereign Lord by persecuting his people. Conversely, God's people living in the earthly city should pursue not narrow and exclusive party interests, but the well-being of all the city's inhabitants. Now this, of course, flows out of the second great commandment. Love your neighbour as yourselves. Our sense of solidarity with the wider community, in its welfare you will find your welfare, should lead us to side with and promote all good and beneficent movements. Not that we should fail to champion the rights of Christians to fair treatment under the law. Uh, and yet even here, I would suggest, it will virtually always be found that we are fighting for wider interests. For example, in campaigning for our freedom of expression, we'll be striking a blow for everyone's freedom of expression. 
history again shows that when the earthly city violates the civil and religious rights of the church, others also suffer. The last and fiercest persecution of the church by the Roman Empire under the Emperor Diocletian began with the persecution not of the church, but of the Manichees, the most successful and popular form of Gnosticism. Perhaps Christians foolishly looked on with a gloating smile as the pagan authorities clamped down on these Gnostic sectarians. But it was the church's turn next. You see the principle. The only realistic and honourable way to stand up for religious toleration for ourselves is to stand up for religious toleration for others too. Even those whose religion we despise, as the early church certainly despised Gnosticism. Seek the welfare of the whole city and all its people. Your freedom and theirs, your rights and theirs, your security and theirs rise and fall together. So I'm suggesting here then three applications to ourselves as Christians of God's word through Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. First, there is nothing ungodly or shameful about Christians living in the earthly city. Second, Christians should actively seek the welfare of the earthly city and pray for it. Third, Christians should recognise that their own well-being here below is intimately bound up with the well-being of all other members of the earthly city. Let me close with this exhortation from C.H. Spurgeon. Loathe the spirit of those who say that because we are citizens of heaven, we are to have nothing to do with the concerns of men below. A more unchristian-like sentiment, a more selfish sentiment, never degraded spiritual minds. Wherever the Jews dwelt in the days of their scattering, they were commanded to care for the good of the people among whom they dwelt. Here are the words of the Lord by Jeremiah. Seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Surely Christians are not to be less generous than Jews. Happily, we are not under a despot. In England, we are our own governors. And the man who in this land does nothing to secure the good government of the country is by his silence on the side of wrong. You cannot shirk your responsibility anyhow, except by clearing out of the land altogether. And then, if it suffers by your absence, you will still be found guilty. You are part and parcel of the nation, for you share in its protection and privileges. And it is yours as Christian men to feel that you are bound in return to do all you can in the midst of it to promote truth and righteousness.